All right. So thank you for bearing with us as we uh, work through some technical difficulties with the screen here in the room. Um, this is the last evening of our Creation Care series. So as we wrap up tonight, we have the wonderful Father Gar here from St. Thomas the Apostle um, to share with us their journey with um, installing solar panels on their church and kind of the theology behind their rationale for it. So with that, Father Gar, I'm going to turn it over to you. And thank you so much for being here today. Yeah. Hi, everybody. Hi. Do I have my microphone on correctly and you can hear me? Okay, so my name is Gar Demo. I am the rector at St. Thomas Episcopal Church. I am also canon for congregational development for the diocese. Now, before you get too impressed, all that means is I do special projects for the bishop. Um, I don't have a job with the diocese. My job is full-time at St. Thomas, um, but I have a real passion for congregational development, um, particularly around discipleship work. And so I have been assisting like with some of the smaller congregations, just giving them some additional resources, working with the other clergy, encouraging them. We have this great thing at BKSM. Um, we have some graduates here. Um, and so working with some of them who've been sent out into complicated situations and small churches with limited resources uh, to try to give them some support. So I just kind of I'm available to people to have conversations with and to do some work, and I sometimes go meet with vestries and things like that. But that is not my full-time job, but I do that. I have been at St. Thomas uh, for 17 years, um, which is a number that's hard to say out loud, um, except for I know I've been there that long because my youngest child was one when we got there, and he just he's now graduated from high school, and my oldest child is 22 and she just graduated from college. And so she, when we got there, she was four and a half and he was one, and they have grown up in the church and things like that. Um, prior to that, I was in Arkansas for four years at a church in Conway, which is right, uh, just barely north of Little Rock. Um, and prior to that, I was served at St. Michael's over in Mission um, and got to know folks over here. Some of you might've been around when Randall Curtis was on staff. We were. Uh, he was your youth minister for a long time, I think right after you guys had bought HJs, and he was painting and stuff. You might not remember him. It doesn't matter. It's been a while. Um, but I got to know him really well and used to come over here, and uh, we would cause trouble. Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, I'm glad to be here. That When the Jen sent me the request she said I want you to just come give a class about how you put solar panels in I was like well that's when I sat down to think about it, I was like that's not going to take very long so someone gave us money we found solar panels the company put them in and now they sit there and they don't make any sound they don't do anything they don't move and they make a lot of energy and I can show you a picture of the energy that they make but you can't even see them from the street and I thought that's not a very interesting uh, presentation, so we're going to talk about other stuff. So let's talk about God and creation and why we did that. Um, so I thought we'd start with the theological and missional considerations about why you might want to think about doing uh, environmental work as a ministry or as a mission. Uh, the church is probably the world's largest civic society organization present in virtually every nation and every community and having an immense impact on how people think. Um, 
if the church can harness this influence to inspire people to care more for creation and to act upon its care, then the world might be or could be a very different place. So, and then one of my favorite books is The Brother Karamazov. Um, if you've ever read it, it's, it's not a light read. Um, but this is a wonderful theological statement. If you, it's filled with wonderful theology, by the way, if you ever have a chance to read that book. Love of all creation, the whole of it, every grain of sand. Love every leaf, every ray of God's light. Love the animals, love the plants, love everything. If you love everything, you will soon perceive the divine mystery in things. Once you perceive it, you will begin to comprehend it better every day. And you will come at last to love the whole world with an all-embracing love. So social science and psychologists know some things about what nature can do to us. Like if you go for a 20-minute walk in a place with good trees and you can touch the soil, it actually has physiological impacts on your biology. And it can help you to relax and it can help you to reconnect and it can sometimes help take care of all kinds of things. That touching the soil is actually kind of critical. There is real science behind that, not just somebody who made a YouTube video and it sounded good and it's a good sales pitch, but there's actually a scientific thought behind um, what we do. The funny thing is we can go back to the Greek philosophers and one of the prescriptions, I don't remember if it's Plato or Aristotle, I think it's Plato, gave a prescription and said to somebody who was freaking out, you need to go take long walks in nature. So, you know, the Greeks knew everything before we did. I think they even probably knew about the internet, but, um, you know, they thought about that. And so if you think about what does Jesus do when he's in moments of intensity? Um, there's three or four times in scripture, he goes off to pray, right? And, and where is the, one of his final physical acts before he's crucified, but in a garden, um, you know, in a beautiful place filled with God's creation. And we can go back and link all kinds of stories from the Old Testament. If you have prayed the Psalms, you will know of God's creation because of the natural world. And it's kind of, I think it's worth grounding ourselves in that understanding when we think about our care for the planet and our care for the land that we're on and whatever we do, that this is God's creation, it's not ours. Even though we have pieces of paper that tell us that we might own part of it, um, even though we throw fences up, um, even though we think we have something, we really don't own anything, right? It is all God's. And that's one of the reasons why I love this uh, small part of the piece out of the Brothers Karamazov about love, is that somehow we connect to creation, and it's a way that we connect to, to God and who created us. Um, one of the funny things I think about is how I think sometimes we talk about nature as if we're not part of it. Do you know what I mean? We talk about it as if we're uh, able to be, we're so separate from it, we can speak about it when we're talking to other people as if we're not part of the natural world. And how do you begin to know you're part of the natural world? Well, if you've ever lived close to a place that's been struck by a tornado, or you've been in a flood, or you've been in any kind of natural disaster, you, or you've had a snowstorm come and put enough snow on your house that, it, that it, the house falls over, um, those are times when we know that we're part of creation, right? 
or even on days like this when it's really hot. Um, even when you're in air conditioning, it can feel hot, right? That's when you know it's hot. But there's, there's times that, that creation lets us know that we are uh, a very small, insignificant speck of dust in the midst of its power. Um, and I think we can kind of think about that. The other thing that we have this, this thing is we've had narratives that have been given to us um, throughout our lives. And so I have to give you my perspective. So some of you have been around the sun a few more times than I have. Um, and so I'm going to give you a little bit of a 70s and 80s perspective because that's when my childhood and teenage years were. Um, I am Gen X, so there's a certain perception. These were two people... Um, you know, I know that Smokey the Bear is not a real person, but um, when I was a child, I didn't know that. Um, but it had a big impact on me about a couple of things. One is, you remember the Indian, right? The ads, the very powerful ads that the government put out about get involved now about pollution hurts, pollution hurts all of us. The most famous ad is all these people throwing trash out, you know, and he's standing by the side of the road next to a beautiful place, and he's got a feather in his hair, and he starts to cry. You know, that's all. He never says anything; he just cries. Um, and so I saw those ads all the time, and it became something where I became aware of creation in the midst of that. Right, that pollution was a bad thing; we had to pick up. You don't litter. We had the new things. You know, don't litter, throw it away. You know, the city started putting stuff everywhere. Um, I also grew up in a time when we had acid rain. Do you remember that? Um, this is sort of right before, you know, all of the great, you know, the EPA was established and all of the different acts that are now trying to be torn down. And I'm not, I'm not here to talk politics, but I, I am going to talk about politics. So you understand the difference? So the current mode of some parts of our society is to tear down things that at one point were absolutely necessary because we were, we were on the edge of real destruction and we forget that. Acid rain was a problem throughout the Northeast, the West Coast. Forests were literally being stripped of leaves by the rain that came down because there was so much pollution in the air. New York City used to look like it did a few weeks ago when the smoke from Canada came down. That used to be, if you went to New York City, that was every day, right? And waterways used to just be filled with pollution. You literally could see oil floating on lots of, of most of the waterways until all those acts came about and there was huge efforts to clean up the creation. Um, like the smoke of the, smoke of the bear, um, this only you can prevent forest fires is a notion that our individual action, right, somehow changes the world. And that is true, but it is not enough for the creation to be able to heal itself from the damage that all of us have participated in creating. Does that make sense? Gar, yeah. uh, I lived up in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan for sure. a while. Um, you know, 40 years ago, you couldn't eat the fish out of right. Lake Superior because it was so badly polluted. The entire Great Lakes chain. Now that that's the largest fresh body of fresh water in the world. And it was so badly polluted that, that only an agreement between Canada and the United States began the process of cleaning it up. Now you can eat the fish because it's clean, right. relatively, you know. Now, you've got places like uh, Green Bay 
which was never cleaned up, but it all settled to the bottom. So as long as you don't stir the bottom up, the water is fairly pure in Green Bay. But it takes an effort to, you know, you, right. have to, you, you have to be intentional about it. And we were intentional about that. The problem with, with what we're in now is that everybody has to be intentional about it. So it's just the Canadians and us, yeah. and we did it. You know. In fairness, my family, I just want you to know, my family has been around the oil business. My, the, the previous generations before me, we were from southeast Kansas. Uh, my great-great-grandfather owned the land that Stockton Oil Well Number 1 was founded on. Now, before you think, oh, my God, Gar must be really rich. My, my great-great-grandfather liked to gamble, and he traded the land two years before they found the oil for a racehorse that never run a, won a race. Um, so he missed out on that, but my grandfather worked for Standard Oil, um, as you would know, Getty Oil, essentially, um, helping put refineries in. He helped build refineries. He was, he was a grease master, and he helped go and build refineries around Tulsa and Wichita and place like that. My dad spent about a third of his career working for companies like Kermagee and Anadarko uh, doing lease management. So I don't, I don't want to pretend like um, I am somehow better than above or beyond the, the acts that have created that. Because part of the challenge is, is oil also had blessings to it in what it did for society. I'm not defending you know, some of the things that are happening now. But that was something that transformed us, both with agriculture and other things, in ways that, that we can maybe not fathom how much things have changed. And we are so dependent on it, right, that we don't think about most of you are wearing clothing, um, that most of the dyes and other things in your clothing are from oil. How many of you brought a car tonight? Anybody walk or ride a bike? Yeah. Um, you know, your tires, your... Uh, the, if you ha I have an electric car, so I didn't use gasoline, but there's still oil involved in making the car that I have. You know, our homes, you know, the plastic that we use, unless it's, unless it's a particular kind of plastic, is from oil. We're still kind of seeped in that. Um, so I think part of the question is, you know, it's more than our individual actions now. It's more than just choosing not to use plastic or choosing... You know, even a driving an electric car is not enough. It's, it's bigger swaths, and it's bigger sort of thinking. But that first quote I talked about, our role as the church is we can help our people have a chance to think about this theologically, to have conversation, to take politics out of it and understand what we can, how we can touch the ground and see the world around us. And then we can be motivated to act on behalf of creation because we're part of creation, right? Christians know they are part of creation, whether we want to admit it or not, but we are part of the creation. If the creation, you know, Mother Nature, the creation is going to change with global warming, whether we want it to or not, and our, our warning signs are there, right? The bees are not pollinating like they used to because they're dying. Uh, the heat and, you know, weather is not the same as climate change. Just because it's hot today doesn't mean, oh, there's global warming because tomorrow it's cold. There's not. That's not how it works. But some of the flooding and other things, like we've seen this massive flooding up in Nebraska a couple of winters ago. You know, they had all that snow, and then we got a little bit down here, but they had massive flooding. Vermont's having massive flooding. Think of the flooding that's happened in California with these, you know, massive amounts of water coming in from the ocean. 
those are all caused, as the scientists will talk about it, those are all caused by the climate changing and the ocean currents shifting. And people, are, people who are much brighter than I am are trying to figure that out, but we sort of see it. My daughter is uh, going to be a graduate student at John Hopkins for environmental science. She's, she's actually a legitimate scientist. Um, she is working right now on research of what happens with forever chemicals. You know what that is? So it's things like the leftover stuff. So she's studying turtles right now in the research that she's working on this summer um, in the natural world because most turtles being born now are female. So why are they being born as female? Because the forever chemicals mimic, um, uh, mimic estrogen. So they're endocrine, uh, they're endocrine blockers. So they go in and they change the hormones in the creation because they look like the body can't interpret. The body says, oh, that's a forever chemical. I don't need that. They're shaped like estrogen and other things. And so your body thinks you get that. And then it causes changes in the body and things are happening. And so one theory is these forever chemicals is causing all the turtles to be born female. And then the study is, okay, we know if we can, if we can figure that out, then how is it affecting people? Because if you live somewhere where, you know, we live in the, an area where we can get water that's been filtered through limestone for the most part, so a lot of our drinking water is pretty safe, but if you live in other places, they don't have that. And so they may be getting exposed to these because the forever chemicals are not something that's easy to take out of the water. And so if someone's constantly being exposed to chemicals that change the hormones in their body, what does that mean for them? Does that kind of make sense? So these are like, you know, legitimate things to think about. So this is... Uh, my church experience of the environment, I thought some of you might appreciate the old coffee cups. Do you remember those? The little, this is like almost environmental. Do you know what I mean? It's like the bottom half is something you can reuse, but then you put a piece of plastic in it so you don't have to touch the heat and then you drink it. That was what I remember of coffee cups being when I was growing up in the church was those little things. They're never very big. They only hold like five ounces. Used to be at Pentecost, at the churches that I was part of as a child, we would fill balloons with helium, and we would, all the kids would write a note telling somebody that God's love them, and you'd leave them your phone number. Remember, this is the 70s, you know, lawn darts were like, okay, hey kids, little kids, here, go throw these things up in the air that have spikes on them. Good luck. Oh, don't worry about a helmet while you're riding that bike. Um... (laughs) You know, and so we'd, we'd fill these balloons up, and then, then we'd go outside on Pentecost, and what we would do, we'd release it, and then we'd say, oh, well, just wait, somebody will call you. You know, of course, if you knew as an adult, you know the balloon probably went up five, 600 feet, popped, and fell to the ground. But then we found out a few years later, because I remember doing this at school, not for Pentecost, but all kinds of stuff. We'd release balloons all the time, put notes in it, all that kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden, somebody figured out it was bad for the environment, and you couldn't do it anymore because the balloons didn't go away and they mimicked little creatures that birds and other things liked because they kept finding birds and other animals that had eaten these balloons and it would kill them because it would get in their stomach and block their intestines. So that was something I remembered from the environment. Um, And of course, air conditioning is something we have been conditioned to enjoy. Um, When I grew up, my family did not have air conditioning. Actually, we had an air conditioner, but mom would not turn it on except for like a week or two like this. And it would only get turned on at about 10 o'clock at night, and it would get turned off at seven in the morning, and you just lived in the heat. 
And I did not have, I mean, I told my kids, I could show them pictures. I said, we just did not have air conditioning. We opened the windows. We lived outside. Uh, it wasn't because we didn't have money or anything like that. It was just because that was just what we did. We lived in areas of the world where you didn't really need it because we didn't think we needed it, right? And so you get a little conditioned to being, we all like to be about 68 to 72 degrees. Now you might argue that a little bit this way, but we like that temperature. Can we agree on that? Well, it's a, it's a pretty heavy cost of the environment to get there because of the energy that's needed to produce it and also the refrigerant. So this is just, you know, things to think about. So I just wanted to give that background because I think it's important. So there's a little bit of an edge to me that thinks my individual choices are going to make all the changes in the world that need to happen because that's what I was kind of told to do. There's a little bit of me that um, has been conditioned to accept environmental damage as a consequence of the life I live without really questioning it. So it's nothing to think about when you fill your car up that you're, you know, potentially damaging the environment or, you know, there's sort of a little part of that. But there's also some that we sort of know that we can make an impact because I remember a time when things were changed and we sort of do that. But what do you do as a church and how do you live into that? How do you live into that sort of part that Dostoevsky talks about, about living, really loving God in creation and loving that? So at St. Thomas, uh, we started talking about this 15 or 16 years ago um, as we were doing stuff is, are there things we can do? And what do you think the first reason we wanted to do that was? We wanted to save money, right? Because how can we, because our electric bill, uh, what's, what's St. Andrew's electric bill? Anybody know? How much do you spend a year on electricity? All right, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000? Yeah. So we spend, I think we spend around thirty-six dollars to $40,000 a year on utilities. Our church is a little bit smaller than yours and a little bit newer than your older building. Uh, so we have a little bit more, you know, a little, little bit different insulation than a stone church. But um, the first compulsion was how can we save money, right? Um, the second compulsion was some people were thinking about the environment, and so what are things we can do? And then the third thing is, is we're, money is tight because most churches experience money is tight. Even when we have a lot of money, it's still tight because that's what, what any church, you, John can affirm this, no matter what size your budget, it's tight in any church that you're in because there's always more you can do. Um, and so we started thinking about what we could do. And then some of us were really concerned about the environment and what can we do. We started talking about, you know, carbon footprint started to become the thing that people talked about. Uh, we started thinking about how, how are we setting an example for our children? How are we setting an example for the world around us? And so we started asking questions. What can we do about our HVAC system? What are options that are more environmentally sound? What can we do about how we use water? Our society is one of the strangest societies because we make lots and lots of drinking water and then we pour it on the ground for our plants and they don't need chlorinated water. Um, it's an interesting thing if you think about it that the hose you hook up to your house is perfectly drinkable and if you get people from other society, other parts of the world that come in they're kind of shocked that we would just pour it out on the, on the thing and it's kind of expensive actually. Um, what can we do about energy efficiency? Uh, what can we do about the heat gains and losses in our building, the R factor? So like when you're building a building and you put insulation in, what's your R factor in your building? How can you uh, do that? And then what about the difference between serving and using renewable 
um, either energy or also using renewable items versus one-time use. We are a culture filled with single-serving entities in our life, right? We purchase a cup and use it once, right? How many of you have ever been to Quick Trip and you bought a Coke or something, got a fountain drink or iced tea or coffee? You get the cup, you fill it. That, most of those cups would last years, you know, and then what do we do with it? We throw it away. Why? Because we can because there's convenient trash cans, nobody charges anything, we don't think about it. How many of you remember picking up uh, Cokes in bottles that you could return, right? I'm just, just old enough that I remember, and that was a great way when you were a kid to make money, right? You go to your neighbor's house, you got any bottles? At my bike and my friend Alan, we go get bottles. And then why did we decide to not do that anymore? To not recycle. Well, Coca-Cola and other people figured out that because once aluminum became easier, because at first soda cans were tin. Remember that? Mm-hmm. So you could, and you can't recycle tin, and tin's expensive. But then aluminum got a lot better, and there's a coating they can put on aluminum that means the drink isn't affected, the taste. So they put a little, like it's not a plastic, but they put a coating on the aluminum, which you might not know that's there. But aluminum is super cheap, right? And it's easy to manufacture tons of it, and it greatly reduces the cost, where glass is expensive, and the process of cleaning it is expensive and getting it returned. And so it was, it was market-driven, not because a bunch of people got together and said we don't want glass bottles anymore, but we actually were doing it, and we were doing something that was probably better in, for the environment in the long run, but then we, we went away from it. It used to be that you could get milk in glass bottles. I don't know, can you get them in Missouri still in glass bottles? It's, it's shadow milk can do it. Um, you used to be able to get yogurt in glass, and now yogurt is, you can't really get yogurt in glass um, unless you make it yourself. Because um, glass can be renewed. If, you know, it can be easily, you know, you can smash glass up and remake it into something. You can with plastic, but glass is much easier, and you can wash glass, and there's all kinds of things we could talk about with that. So part of that is thinking about what's renewable, what's one time. Thinking about when we're doing stuff, activities at the church, what are the things that we can do? How are we making decisions about that? What are the signals we're sending? Expense and time. Um, thinking about some of the things that are really going to make a difference are going to be really expensive. Solar panels are not cheap. And sometimes the tax credits are difficult for the churches to get, okay? There are ways to do it. I am not a tax person, and I'm not going to talk about that because I don't want you to think there's a way. (laughs) But I was presented with a way to do it. We chose not to because I thought it was kind of sketchy. Like, what it would mean is, like, John could buy the solar panels for the church. He could take the deduction and then a year later give the solar panels to the church. And that's probably okay, but we had a donor that wanted all of her money deducted that she gave, and so it was just better for her tax-wise just to give us the full donation, does that make sense, than to get the tax credit. But you can go talk to a tax accountant about that, whether that's good. Thinking about short-term expenses over the long-term, right? So um, you put LEDs in here. Um, LEDs are much more expensive than, they're getting better, but they're expensive, more expensive than a fluorescent light bulb, which is more expensive than an incandescent light bulb. Um, or uh, there's some other kinds of light bulbs that you can put in. 
that are a lot less expensive because the manufacturing is there. But each of them lasts different. Incandescents last about six months. Fluorescents are about two, maybe three years if they're good. And then how long do LEDs last? They say 10 years, but no. Huh? They can last, uh, they'll tell you 50,000 hours. Most can go 100,000 hours. So that means turning the light on, leaving it on for 100,000 hours. Nobody leaves the light on for all that time. Uh, I have LEDs that we put in our house when we moved in 17 years ago. We haven't had to touch them. Um, you know, you, they, they last a long time. Not all of them are perfect. They do break. They have manufacturing issues and stuff like that, but they don't last. So you can spend, now it's like four or five bucks for an LED bulb, and or you can spend a dollar, but you can change a light bulb every six months, or you can put it in and forget about it. Right, and then when you're dealing with a church, how many light fixtures or light individual lights do you have here at St. Andrews? Five? No, probably several hundred, if not a thousand. Right, and it's it's a, it's it's a bit expensive to do that, but then you're you're doing a couple of things. One, you're doing your maintenance people, whoever's doing that. If you have volunteers doing it, you're saving them time. You're also better for the environment. They use about 10% of the energy, if not 5%. Um, and the light is a little different, things like that. So where are we using more, more energy? So we were looking at stuff that we were doing. We had somebody come in that kind of was an engineer, that kind of just a member that knew that stuff. We looked at fire exit lights were our first thing uh, because all of our fire exit lights had to be on 24-7. They were all incandescents when we did this which meant lots of changing of little light bulbs, and so that was a quick fix to change that over to LEDs. Um, looking at our regular our incandescent light bulbs, changing those over. At the time we were doing it, they went to fluorescence because that was the best thing. LEDs weren't quite what they are now. Um, looking at our outdoor lighting. Parking lot lights are often big lights that take you know 500 watts, things like that. Your overhead lighting. Uh, fluorescent versus LED, and then thinking about you know, whenever you have to change an HVAC system, looking for as economical a, a reason as you can. There's lots of ways to do that. So this was our situation at St. Thomas. We did solar panels and LED lights at the same time. We had 765 light fixtures in our building. We went through and counted them all. So that's a lot of light bulbs. It's a lot of fixtures. It's a lot of energy. But we don't think about it because we think, oh, it's a fluorescent light. It only burns two kilowatt, whatever, hours per hour. Um, it's not much, but times 765 is a lot. Um, we had a combination of halogen lights in our sanctuary. We had fluorescent lights in most of our building, and then we still had some fixtures with incandescent lights. So when we did the solar panels, the first thing we were working on, and it took us five years to get to this decision because we kept trying to figure out how to do our lighting in our sanctuary because it's kind of complicated. We replaced our 38 halogen bulbs in our sanctuary, which was the main lighting, which, you know what a halogen bulb is? They're little tiny. They're about this big, and if you touch them, they catch on fire. And they were up at, far up in our high ceiling. And we had, you know, so we had this pole that you put up, and, we had one guy that could change the light bulbs without having to pay somebody to do it. Uh, but they burn 13.5 kilowatt hours per hour. So this is a lot of energy. Now, how many of you are engineers? So we'll just say that's a lot, because I don't understand these things, these words. I don't know why you have to say hour per hour, but that's what I was told. 
Now, for all of that, it's 1.2 kilowatt hours per hour. So we've reduced it by 90%, actually 91%, I think, or something like that. We, we replaced 78 fluorescent fixtures that use 6.5 kilowatt hours per hour, and now we're using 0.8 kilowatt hours per hour because we're replacing with LEDs. And then in one wing of our building, we converted 177 light boxes. So those are the little boxes that go up that have the fluorescent bulbs in them. Uh, we, we replaced those with LED light boxes. They look the same, but they just go up. It's a flat panel. It's about this thick, super light, not too hard to do, but you got to know what you're doing when you do it. So the cool thing is now all those light bulbs have 100,000 hours of use. Um, they're commercial, so they have a little bit longer than some of the ones you might buy at Home Depot. They lower the room noise considerably. You don't think about this, but all light bulbs buzz. None of us notice it because we're used to it until it's gone. Um, we can do a variability in our lighting, so you can see some of the blue light in that picture. Uh, we reduced our power usage to 10% of what was previously used. There's little to no maintenance, and including our solar. This is just the first six months of this year. We've already, our difference in our electric bill and gas bill is $8,000, okay? Part of the other thing that LEDs do is LED light bulbs do not produce much heat. A halogen bulb produces massive heat. So you, when you're turning your air conditioner on, you're, you're, you're cooling down 38 really big candles burning the entire time you're in the sanctuary. And you go from that to almost no heat out of an LED. So that's another thing that we don't think about. Um, we also gave us some ability to do different colors, whether you like this or not. I wasn't sure how this would go. All right, I'm a traditional Episcopalian. I like to use the Book of Common Prayer. I like, I like the liturgy. I like high church. I'm, not, I'm a theater person too, but I'm really not big on theater in the church. Kind of like it pure. Our folks love the lights and love the color. And so we mix it up. We, do, we don't do a lot. It's not crazy. This was Christmas, or this was in the bishop visit. We had blue up. It was Advent. So we do blue in Advent. Uh, this was at our Christmas Eve service, and we were singing Silent Night. The camera's a little, makes it look a lot bluer than it was, but it gave this kind of nice light that you could still see with, but it felt like nighttime, or you're singing Silent Night, so it's kind of cool, really beautiful. This was Pentecost, not Chief Sunday, I know. Um, this was Pentecost, and we were taking pictures of the church. Um, you know, we got some red, so it's kind of fun. You can do some liturgical accents. Uh, That look at the uh, look at the book on the altar. Well, look, at, look at all the fingerprints on the back of the book. Oh yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It needs it needs. I think somebody wants to rebrass that. It's gotten kind of dirty over the years. Um, okay, solar panels. So the other decision was we wanted to do solar panels, and this took a long time for us to come to. And we had someone in our church come kind of mid-pandemic, and so I want to do something for the church, and we kind of talk project. She got really excited about this, went home and told me she was going to help do that, and she brought me a check for $10,000. She says, is that going to be enough? And I said, no. <laughs> and she said, well, how much is it going to be? And I said, I don't know. And I said, I'll call some companies get some bids. And I was like, I don't think she's going to fund this much. And I don't know, she's trying to get it. And I was like, and I went to the vestry and we're like, well, let's look at it, get an idea. So I called three or four solar companies. We came out and got bids. 
it's anywhere from 130 to 220,000 to put bulbs in. And then I took it back to this donor. She goes, wow, that's a lot of money. Uh, well, give that to me and I'll get back to you. And she called me back. She goes, well, I, I think I'm going to help with that. I'm going to do a little bit. And, I'm, and what she meant to say is I'm going to do a little bit this month and a little bit next month. She wanted to fund the whole thing. So about two months later, she called me, and she had all the money, and she sent it in, and she wanted to fund the whole project. Now, that's a blessing to St. Thomas. That might not happen here, but she was highly motivated. The good thing is, is that gift let us do the LED lights because the rest of the congregation said, well, I want to be part of that. So we, we said, well, it'll cost us, I think it was 38000 to do all the LED lights, and so they signed up for that. Does that make sense? So it, that gift produced another gift um, and more gifts. Um, roughly, if the solar panel, we put in 177 panels. We have flat roofs, so that's part of, it kind of helps us, and our building helps that. They're rated for EF2 tornadoes, so they actually don't, they're not attached to the building, they sit on top of the building. They are weighted down on the roof with cement uh, tiles, and they're linked together, and so they sit on that. So we had to have a, a structural engineer come out to make sure the building could sustain it. We had to have roofers come out to make sure that it wasn't going to damage the roof as soon as we put them on. Uh, they put stuff down to make all that less of an issue. Um, we had no trouble. We had plenty of ability to, with, with, to hold the weight. Um, 177 panels is a lot with all that weight on it. Um, the insurance company, Church Pension Insurance, uh, gladly insured the solar panels. Sometimes people hear that you can't get insurance for them. It was, we called them and said we put it on. They said send us a statement so we know how much. And they said you're insured. So that was easy. Um, so, you know, if a big storm comes through, because that could happen here, right? Um, and they go blowing off. That was one of my dreams. I have that, I've had that dream four times, which I don't usually remember my dreams, but I just had one a couple weeks ago. And I was sitting in church, and people came in and said, Gar, Gar, the solar panels. I said, what? They said, they're off the roof. <laughs> and they took me out, and they're all laying off the roof, like just dangling, you know. It's like, I guess I, I, guess I have anxiety about that. Um, it's a 77-kilowatt system. Um, so one, one thing I will say is Missouri, which you're in, has much better solar laws than Kansas. Kansas sucks for solar. Um, our legislatures like oil a lot more because we have lots of people in oil. Even though we have all these wind farms and, you know, they're trying to put solar, they're trying to put a big solar thing out um, in Olathe, out in Johnson County, but uh, you guys have much more favorable laws because you can actually get money back from Evergy. We cannot. So what we have is a one-for-one -one exchange. So if we make more power in Kansas than we use, we get a credit for the power. So our panels work great from 8 in the morning until about 6 o'clock at night when it's sunny. And then, of course, they don't work at night. So we make a lot more power than we use. Our meter spins one way, and then when we get off of it, it spins the other way. And we're making about 80% of our own power through the year. And we, the reason we're not at 100% is because we just kind of wanted to make sure we didn't really have the roof space, and we just kind of didn't want to. We could have probably gotten to 100%, but we weren't sure. We want to kind of reduce our usage. Um, the panels are got to have a 20-year warranty, um, and they're expected to last at least 25 years. Does that make sense? So basically, and they don't do anything. Literally, you put them on the roof, and they sit there, they're hooked up to wires, they're hooked up to these converters, and they plug into your system and they just make power. If there's light, they make power. You know, and if the, the angle's right, they make more power. 
and then they go down. They have a coating on them that whenever it rains, it cleans them off. You don't have to wash them off. You don't have to go up there and scrub them once a week or anything like that. Um, they're just sort of benign, and you can hardly even see ours. Um, this is what our solar ray looks like. So this is looking down from the top of St. Thomas, and then these are pictures of the actual, this is the design, and this is the picture of the actual panel. So they sit at a 10 degree angle, pointed to this, I th think it's sort of to the west, no, to the south, because the Kansas sun is mostly in the southern part of the sky. So that gives you a good angle. Um, this is what we've gotten so far. So I can kind of interpret this for you. So the graph over here, it has the numbers. Um, let me get my glasses on. So this is the number of megawatt hours that we're producing. So obviously January, February, and March, it's cloudy. And the, there's not much sun because you're only getting light. You can see as soon as the sun sort of moved. We also had one part of our panels not working and they got turned on, so they got a little bit more. Um, April was a, was a great month. We had hardly any rain. And then we've just continued to pick up. We expect July to be a little higher than June, and then we'll kind of peak, and then we'll go back down. It should look about the same. Um, so in April, May, and June, we've produced over 10 megawatt hours of energy. We typically use, on average, between 11 and 12. Does that make sense? So we're, we're, our electric bill last month was $500, which the year before it was $2,200. So it's not an insignificant amount of savings. It won't go to zero um, because there's charges. Again, Kansas is lousy. Uh, if you're over here, you have a much better situation, but they continue to charge us certain things. Um, so we get to use the power grid as our battery. Does that make sense? One question people have is, should we put a battery in? Um, essentially, any excess power we make goes onto the power grid, and then, like I said, our meter spins both ways, and so we, uh, it helps us and we don't get charged. Um, this is a typical day. Uh, this was last week sometime. Uh, it was partly cloudy. We were making, we had made 314 kilowatt hours of energy that day. Um, that month, at that point, we'd had 9.59 megawatt hours. It was a partial month. That was where we were for the year, and then the lifetime things. The one stat that's kind of interesting is this one way over here. Um, this was today. At this point, since the solar panels have been turned on, we have saved 102,000 pounds of CO2 emissions from being put into the atmosphere. So can you imagine what 102,000 pounds is? That's a lot. And they say an equivalent of 776 trees planted is what that's equivalent of. So that's about six months worth of having the solar on. So imagine 20 years of what that's going to mean. Again, so it's a heavy investment, right? 144,000 for our solar panels, not a light investment. But we will have, I think what we figured out and again, we don't know for sure because we, we haven't experienced what the solar panels will do here. We think our return on investment will be about 11% a year. Um, and then, so it'll take us about eight years before our solar panels would have paid for themselves. Does that make sense? Now, the difference is we didn't borrow anything to do this. So it's not like a lot of people put solar on their homes and they borrow 20000 to do it. We paid up front, so our savings for us is immediate because we got a donation to cover it. So I'm just answering questions. I had lots of questions on my vestry about the business side of things, and so we had to do a lot of research. 
Um, this is the real deal. This is our Evergy bill for the last bit. Um, this is about 18 months. This is what we would run. This, this side is, is pre-solar panels. Our solar panels went in about November. And like I told you, we had a slight issue. Uh, about a third of our solar panels weren't working for some reason. They got that fixed. Um, but you can see even in really bad light months, December, January, February, we were getting significant savings, about half of our energy from what we made before. And then over here, that April, May, June, you can see how much, if you look over, I'm gonna get up. Easy if I do it this way. So if you see, this is May, June, and July of last year, right? Or this is April, May, and June. And then this is April, May, and June this year. You see the difference? I know it's you're looking at a chart, but this is a huge, this is 10 megawatts difference, 11 megawatts difference in energy usage. Does that kind of make sense? And again, you could get that lower if you put a few more panels on, but we just ran out of juice. I think that's the end of my presentation. Yeah. So part of this, part of the, the donor wanted to do this as a legacy, as, as her legacy gift. Does that make sense? So this is a way for her to per perpetuate her pledge. Think endowment. But this is a physical gift that's an endowment gift. Um, she will die in the next you know, five to 10 years. She's not a young person. Um, but she was so excited about this, and she still asked about it. And I have to send her updates on how much money we're saving. You know, she's that kind of person. But the other thing that, that I would that I would share with you, I just got back from the, am I way over time? Okay. I, I went to the Episcopal Youth Event, the National Youth Event. I was one of the chaperones for our diocese. And let me see if you can guess what the three top issues that the kids wanted to talk about was. And this is things they identified. Uh-huh. What else? Environment. And what? Environment more than, they wouldn't use that language. What was another thing? Guns. Guns. Uh, uh, the, those are the three things that's on their mind. Guns. Uh, school shootings. LGBTQ. Or really inclusion, it's more than that. It's LGBTQ and racial inclusion. And they see those two things as intermixed, um, as failures of the current society. They, they witness that because they're working that out amongst themselves, if that makes sense, in ways that are, you know, every generation works things out the last that the previous generations haven't done. Um, and then school shootings is something most of them have had literal experience with. Okay, they know somebody at their school that's brought a gun. They they've they've got a school close to them that have had a shooting. I have kids in my school that were were right next to the Olathe school shooting that happened. If you remember the kid that brought a gun in and you know it almost went real bad. Um, we had that police officer that was killed in Overland Park not too long ago. It was at the end of our driveway at St. Thomas. I don't know if you knew that. It was literally the the memorial is less than a quarter block away from us, but the we were the, we were the, our parking lot was where all the vehicles, emergency vehicles stayed during their investigation. So what the kids talked about in, in their workshops and, and things like that, they are 
they don't know a time that the world has not been in crisis about the environment, okay? And they feel it in a way. It's a visceral reality because they're trying to plan their futures and they know because they're studying it and learning about it that the reality that the world is, well, how the world is going to be in 10, 15, 20 years, 30 years is not the world you and I have lived in. Does that make sense? And so that is a top concern for them. They don't understand why we all aren't making this the biggest deal that we could ever make it. Does that make sense? And so when they come to church and we don't ever talk about the environment or we don't deal with it or we don't teach on it or we don't do things in our buildings that could make sense, um, we s we're missing a missional opportunity. Does that make sense? And they, they don't just want to sit around and talk about it and bemoan that it's bad. They want to fix it. They want to get out there. They want to make changes. They want you not to use plastic. They want you to buy recyclable drink containers. You know, they want us to recycle or not use paper. You know, there's just all kinds of things. I mean, you know, you can, they're thinking about all of it. Um, in terms of inclusion and other stuff, they see that as justice issues or, or they see it as, again, their lived reality. They don't understand why people would hate a person that doesn't, you know, look like them or doesn't love like them. They don't, they don't understand that. It doesn't mean there aren't young people that, that have the opposite. These are just the kids that were at this place. Um, and then, like I to told you about gun violence is um, a big deal. Um, what, what questions do you have? I know this is kind of all over. I was trying to make this more than just we put solar panels up. Ooh, cool, isn't that neat? But I actually think this is, an, you know, we have had young people come in, younger people come in, younger, under 40, I always define that in the Episcopal Church, um, who get very excited when they find out we have solar panels. And they're like, when did you put, because you can't see them, so we have to make a big deal out of it. Um, I said, well, why did you put that in, or when did you do it? And they see that as a real big step. Does that make sense? It's attractive to them because it feels like we're not just putting words you know, in a sermon. We're actually trying to live it out. They get excited about the LEDs. They get excited about that. They want to see us doing something. Um, the challenge with this is once you kind of start down that, then, you know, if you start doing too many things, <laughs> everything you do is questioned. We're dealing with our plastic usage. Um, do you guys, you guys are still using cups. You use paper cups. You use cups in, for worship in here? For Yeah, that's been one of the things is we've used... Yeah, yeah, it's, you know, the pandemic made us shift our traditions, right? You know, we couldn't have done that in the Episcopal Church three years, three years before without a medical emergency. <laughs> we go to cups like our Presbyterian brothers and sisters do all the time. They look at us like, why wouldn't you do that? Um, we're Methodist. Um, they all know how to do that. They think we're silly for, like, why? It's fine, you know. Um, you know, what do you do if, you, if you're using plastic cups or can you get glass cups and... What do people say? Well, I don't want to wash them. It's too much work. Right? That's what my altar guild has said. And I'm not putting them down because it is too much work for them because they're working. We got little, we bought glass ones thinking we would use those and then they just didn't like the, they didn't want to wash them because you got to wash them after every service. And right. Yeah. So I don't want to 
put my altar guild down in case one of them's watching. Because um, they're amazing. But I, I, but I think part of it is, is no, I don't want to make them mad, but I think part of it is learning and understanding and getting what we can do. Does that make sense? And, and our convincing of the vestry, it wasn't that hard, but we just had to have lengthy conversations about it. Um, about the solar panels is there were some construction people who are professional construction people that said, there's a lot better ways to save money. You know, we can do insulation, we can do this, you can do that, solar panels are not a good investment. And they are right if you're building a new building, putting solar panels on in some ways is not the best, is not the best construction business decision. Does that make sense? But it is the best environmental decision. Those two different decisions. And once we kind of got to that, their hook was the return on investment and how much money we were going to save on our bills. That's what they were interested in, the people who were con concerned with that. Legitimate concerns, right? And then for a lot of us, the environmental stewardship and the environmental reality, the 100,000 carbon, 100,000 pounds of carbon not going in the atmosphere is a bigger reality for us. Now, ideally, Evergy makes all of their energy with renewables. This is a mute point then. Does that make sense? But that's probably not going to happen. And we can go down that conversation. They're getting better. I mean, they actually, on our side of the state line, I think it's 55% of the power. I have been a while since I looked at it, but I think it was 55% is wind um, and some solar. Wind is a big thing in Kansas. We, got, we, we make a lot of wind power in Kansas. So, like it's so far away. Yeah. Throw a rock, hit Kansas. But. Do you guys have questions? Yeah, Fred. Mm -hmm. So these are pretty self-selected kids who are motivated. Did they give you any sense about you know, their colleagues, the ones that weren't there, the, the typical uh, kids their age? I think they're a lot different than there's a lot of apathy. I would say there are, you know, apathy or the, the insurmountable problems that are before them you know, what, is, what creates apathy is, is, you know, Karl Marx talked, and I'm not, I'm not a Marxist, but I'm just gonna talk about Karl Marx, talked about one of, the, one of the difficulties of capitalism is it dehumanizes you, right? And it can make you feel as if you are unable to act. So um, the people who study uh, depression talk about learned helplessness. Do you know that term? So learn, you know, there's a study you can do, you take a dog, you put a dog in a cage, half the cage has a, f you wouldn't do this now, but they did it then. Um, half the cage, Marty Seligman is the one that did the study. Half the cage has a little metal thing in it and can shock the dog, half, it, half the cage doesn't. If you put a dog in there and there's no barrier and you shock it, what's the dog do? Moves away, right? Naturally get away from it. You put a barrier up, you put the dog in so the dog can't get away, and this isn't a shock that's gonna kill it, it's just enough to kind of make it not uncomfortable. You shock it, the dog does what? Tries to get away but can't. Pretty soon the dog's laying down. Then you can take the barrier away and the dog won't move. And then Marty Seligman said, I think that might be part of the problem with things like depression and apathy. Apathy is a big part of that, is you get to where you don't think you can make a change. 
And so I think some young people coming up are apathetic because the problems are so insurmountable that they don't feel they can move from it. And so, I, you know, the kids at EYE, I don't know how self-selected they were. They were, you know, 15 or 20 kids from each diocese. You know, I don't know if they were, you know, I don't know if they were motivated by that. This is just what they identified as that group. I think my own experience, my kids go to Shawnee Mission Northwest High School. Um, I've been pretty immersed in, in some programs there. I would say that this, some, the kids are very concerned about those three things. Even kids that don't, you know, that are apathetic, that might not be wanting to go and into a career about that, but they are certainly concerned about, especially especially school shootings, especially the environment, and especially, the, I mean, those three things are really big issues for young people. My 23-year-old granddaughter is studying to be a marine biologist, specifically. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you mentioned the kids are apathetic, but <clears throat> I think all of us are apathetic. Right. I am apathetic. I am a, a very intense uh, environmentalist, but what I can do is has no impact at all. And so I really relate to your 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 dog cage scenario because I've I've been laying down for years, even though I've made marginal effort. Um, I still drive a gas car. And the kids you talk to at your getaway, uh, I wonder which, how many of those want a car to drive pretty quick? A lot of kids don't like to drive now. Uh, <laughs> I can't tell you how many of my kids' friends don't want to drive a car. I don't know if it's because of the environment or they just don't want to learn how to drive, but I am shocked because, man, I was like, when I was 14, boy, the minute I turned 14, I, went, I was going to the DMV if it, I wanted my driver's license the minute I could get it because I wanted that freedom. But... I think we're all a little apathetic because it is, it is, it does feel insurmountable, right? Um, but I, I think that, that we have to be, you know, if we love God and we, you know, and, and we think that God loves us and we want to love what God has created in us and in creation, then we have no other choice but to try to still love God and love by loving the creation as well. And not to be, I mean, you know, and I don't mean that's, that as an easy answer, because I don't, I, I don't know what else to say, but I think that's being faith in the midst of the insurmountable obstacles that are around us. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, um, in my experience, though, a lot of Christians, though, uh, look to God to rescue them, uh, and they're not really interested in the stewardship of the earth. They're more interested in the... Uh, uh, yeah. Jesus coming back and taking care of us. So that's a, I think that's a good, that's actually a good point because one of the challenges theologically in the evangelical side of the world, which we have plenty of evangelical people in, in the church, in our church, the evangelical side of the world says Jesus is coming back and Jesus fixes all our problems. And you can even hear sometimes some evangelical politicians who will say that because they think Jesus is coming back. And then when Jesus comes back, what's going to happen? He's going to fix everything. So then we don't have to worry about some of these things. That's a legitimate position. I don't know legitimate. That is a position that's taken. That is a position that's taken by a large swath of Christianity. But it is not. Actually, I don't think it's the majority. I think most people would, would come out. I think, it's, I think the hard thing is it's like, 
Um, this is the part where we don't always understand uh, the, I think we, or we aren't living out the call in our Christian faith to be in the world and to be part of the creation and to be God's agents in the midst of that. And that, that is how God interacts in the world. Because if we, and I think this is all, this is a great theological conversation about is God, like when I pray, so Sarah's in the hospital, she's dying from something. She has me come in and pray. What is my prayer going to do? Right? Is my prayer magical? Do you know the difference between magic and, pray, and prayer? You know, so magic is, I can come over here, and Sarah and I know each other, so she's going to be okay with me holding her hand. We went to the Holy Land and fell down and stuff like that together. <laughs> we went in the Dead Sea together, so we've been dead and come alive. Um, so if I come over here and do this, there is nothing magical in my body that's going to take her cancer. Or what, if you have cancer, I'm sorry, I didn't know. No. It's going to take whatever in her away. Does that make sense? But this human touch is, is a connection between the body of Christ and is the connection between God, and I can be with her in the midst of her pain and suffering. But I am not a magical thing. Does that make sense? I can be with her. She may heal the next day, but that doesn't necessarily mean I had anything to do with that or there was any kind of magic that happened. But that's the problem in, the theolo- in, in, the, in, the, in some of the Christian thinking is, you know, I can't put my hand on the ground and magically fix everything. But boy, I can make a lot of choices in, in, in some of the th- ways that I do things. I can call my politicians and talk with them. I can rally people together. I can get the church interested. Are you guys part of something like the Faith Networks or there's a in the Missouri side. Yeah. So there's things like getting other churches together that are like-minded, and there's lots of them, um, and going, you know, as a group to your politicians and saying these are these are the things our communities have come up with and decide, you know, think is important. Uh, in Kansas City, Missouri, um, I know is I think the public transit's still free. I mean, that's a great environmental decision. It's a good justice decision. I doubt any of you take the bus, but I know from my work at Nourish KC, that is a big deal for people who don't have transportation because getting to the places, you know, if you live in a, if you live in a poorer part of the city and there's no grocery stores close by, your only option might be the fast food at the gas station or the, or the, or the icky fast food at whatever fast food restaurant's open. You might not have access to your grocery store. What's the f- quickest way to get unhealthy is you smoke, drink, and eat fast food, right? And if that's all you have access to, you know, so getting a bus or you can't get to the good jobs or you can't get to any jobs if you don't have free transportation. But I was going to say a couple things. Uh, having long-term chronic depression and uh, watching my father in the age when there was no medication right. and he died at 54, essentially, I think... Um, Depression. Uh, I, I'm talking right it. into it. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Les. Anyway, uh, uh, you know, to deal with depression, you you have to cope. You have to do things, and that means you break down solutions into small, bite-sized problems. If you take the whole thing and look at it. 
because that's all you can do. And you can't hear me when I do that, right? Okay. Uh, you know, the same is true of, uh, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder. The issue for them is to, you know, is to realize you're doing it and then you have particular coping mechanisms to do that. So that's why I always bring up the, the Great Lakes because two countries decided to do this at the same time they decided that they wanted to get rid of the refrigerants that were taking out the ozone layer. You know, that was a world thing and it was a bad thing and we did it. You know, it's not like we can't do that sort of thing. It's just that those, we haven't done it lately. And I, we're having a hard time being motivated in some sectors of our society around addressing this stuff while other sectors of society want to address it. There are a lot of people who want to address it, and it's part of it is, is, is not sitting back. But especially for those of us who've been around a little bit and remember those kind of activities, you know, things like the Infrastructure Act that passed had a ton of really strong, it was the, it was the strongest environmental piece of legislation ever passed in our country. People don't know that. Because, of, because regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, it will do, it had so many provisions for things like solar panels, internet access, um, you know, uh, environmental work, uh, supportive infrastructure that will make changes, public transportation, you know, all of that kind of stuff that, you know, it's gonna have this huge lasting impact on society and get us so much further along. It's not enough. I mean, if you're an environmentalist, you know it's not enough. It, nev it didn't, never goes far enough, but it got somewhere. Does that make sense? And yeah. Well, uh, for me, part of it is just identifying what you can do right. and address what you can do. I mean, in my case, I've said this to this group before, but I've got 10 trucks, 10 vehicles that spew all kinds of stuff. But I can't afford to get rid of those for all electric vehicles. Right. But I could put solar on my house. So I made that, and I made it, it happened in such a way that was basically a cash neutral situation for me. And I just, it's not a lot, but it's something. And, and I'd like to get electric vehicles, and I'm certainly hunting for it, but it's not well, available uh, soon. I have, I've, I've driven an electric car for six years. Um, they are not perfect. They do have an environmental impact. You have to be honest about it. It takes about two and a half years before you get ahead, because of the cost to make the car, before you get ahead of your of your neighbor driving their gasoline car. And then, you know, there are other things about it that are good, like car doesn't make much heat. It doesn't, um, like there's no heat in the engine. So the snow never melts off your car. Things you don't think about. You have to actually get the snow off your car because it's not gonna go away. It's not like your other cars, they, they warm up and they go away. It doesn't, it doesn't make any heat. Um, it doesn't make any sound unless there's a speaker on it to make it sound like it's moving. So pedestrians don't get hit. There's, it makes no sound. It's almost silent. Um, but it's filled with lithium, right? What's the problem with lithium? Well, lithium's expensive to get out of the ground. The good thing is every bit of that lithium battery is recyclable. The part that deteriorates is electronics in it. The lithium does not become not lithium. Does that make sense? So everything in that can be recycled, but our country's not quite there yet. Just like the giant air, the windmills that make all the power, that those, they're starting to have ones that have to be replaced. That, that material that makes the strength of the windmills is a complicated thing to recycle. 
So it's a legitimate criticism. Then you have all this leftover stuff that you have to put in the environment. But society's got to start recycling. Some of the Build Back, not Build Back Better, but the Infrastructure Act has some ways to help encourage that. You know, everything has consequences, but there's a lot less consequences to doing that. Does that make sense? And you may not be able to replace 10 cars, but you might be able to replace the one you drive the most. You know, those are things, or you might do solar panels, or you might do an energy offset in some other way. Um, and I don't know that, you know, St. Thomas set out to make this big political statement. I think we're trying to do our part to care for creation. Does that make sense? And this is what we could do in our little island of the world. And, you know, we're trying to get to some semblance of carbon neutrality, but it's gonna probably take a decade to do that. It's not like we can just do it tomorrow. We're gonna, every, every chance we have to make a decision, we're trying to make a decision. That's one of the questions is, what's the best environmental decision we can make? Because the advantage the church has is we have time because we're not going to go anywhere, right? Theoretically. Um, <laughs> there's hope, but, I mean, the church is going to sit there. Now, I think St. Thomas has been there for 60 years. It's going to be there for another 60, I would hope. And so those solar panels, will, you know, we'll see the whole life out of them. Um, we've, we've had some conversations at St. Andrews about doing it from the big church. The aesthetic is such a challenge put solar panels on that building for people. But it's a concern. But it's a massive space. Because we've been conditioned that that's, we don't think that's beautiful. And I set my solar panels on the front of my house. They're, they're west-facing. Everybody can see them. But I've had lots of people come by and ask about them, and numbers of people have put solar on their houses because they've seen that. Where somebody else might see that as beautiful. Yeah, I think some do and some don't. 